Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, megastars are making a big splash on local economies with their concert tours this summer, from the Beyonce blip to Taylor Swift's Eras Tour bumping up U.S. GDP, apparently. We find out why there is so much demand for those tickets and why fans are willing to part with a whole lot of money just to be there. And one of them is our technical producer, Talia Miller, who's off to Seattle. She'll give us the lowdown on her big pilgrimage to see Taylor Swift. Uh, She, along with, I guess, 140,000 other people this weekend. Uh, We find out what the big craze is about and just what kind of things people are going to be doing for the big Taylor Swift weekend. But first, ahead of the 40th anniversary of one of the most dramatic events in Canadian aviation history, we speak with the pilot and one of the passengers on the infamous Gimli Glider, the Air Canada Boeing 767 that ran out of fuel 26,000 feet above Western Ontario on July 23rd, 1983. We find out how Captain Bob Pearson managed to guide that massive jet onto a tiny airstrip at a decommissioned Air Force base near the Manitoba town. And we hear from his wife, Pearl, about what it was like to be a passenger on that flight. I'm really excited about this first uh, interview because it is a story that I've always been really fascinated with. Sunday marks the 40th anniversary of one of the most dramatic events in Canadian aviation history, if not in world aviation history, a story that's forever known as the tale of the Gimli Glider. Imagine flying a Boeing 767 when you run out of fuel and the engine shut down some 26,000 feet in the air kilometers from the nearest airport. That's exactly what happened to Air Canada pilot Bob Pearson and First Officer Maurice Quintal on July 23rd, 1983, as they were flying to Edmonton. Um, The -the state-of-the-art aircraft, one of the newest in the Air Canada fleet at the time, Flight 143, with 61 passengers and eight crew on board, was suddenly a giant glider, and it was slowly but surely falling from the sky. Given the circumstances, the obvious choice, and this happened sort of in Western Ontario, right near the Manitoba border, the obvious choice was to try to make it to the nearest major airport, about 120 kilometers away in Winnipeg, where there were emergency crews on hand in case of a crash landing. But they figured out the rate of descent, and they weren't going to make it. And they did have one other last-ditch option, the runway at a decommissioned Air Force base in the Manitoba town of Gimli on Lake Winnipeg. Here is the conversation between the cockpit and Winnipeg Air Traffic Control on that day. Uh, this is a mayday, and uh, we require a vector uh, onto uh, the closest available runway. You're approximately 12 miles from Gimli right now. Uh, where is it? On the right? And that was it. They made their way to Gimli. 16 minutes that transpired between the time the engines went out and the time the plan the plane landed is seen as one of the most incredible feats of piloting a passenger jet anywhere ever as the crew with minimal instrumentation tried to bring the plane safely down on that small airstrip in the end they made it only a few people suffered minor injuries during the evacuation the cause 
it turned out to be a conversion issue from Imperial to metric, whereby the plane took off from uh, Montreal with 20,000 pounds of fuel, not 20,000 kilos that it needed, less than half. The 767 was, of course, one of the first metric aircraft. But what was it like to be in the cockpit during that time? What was it like to bring that plane down? And what was it like to be in the cabin, to be a passenger on that plane? It's great to welcome the plane's pilot, Captain Robert Bob Pearson, and his wife, Pearl Dion, who was one of the passengers on that plane that day. Thank you both so much for your time. Hey, nice to be with you. Nice to be with you. I was thinking, and no pun intended, but time flies, doesn't it? Does it ever? Does it ever? 40 years flies by pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, Bob, take me back to that day, because from all that I've heard, it was a pretty routine day, a pretty routine flight for you, but on a very new plane. Yeah, uh, I had been uh, on the Air Canada's first 767 course, uh, and uh, like you said, the airplanes were brand new. And um, we were brand new. I had about 100 hours. My first Asha had about 60. And we'd been flying the same route uh, all month. I think it was our second month on the airplane. And uh, it was uh, Montreal, Ottawa, Edmonton, overnight in, in Edmonton, and then home through Ottawa the next day. And that was a Saturday. It was just going to be another routine day. It was a nice day in Montreal. The sun was shining. And uh, uh, we were scheduled to depart, um, geez, I think it was uh, early afternoon for Edmonton. Right. And then, of course, I think everyone who knows this story, but for listeners who might not, uh, right above Western Ontario, in the middle of a very, I guess, a very routine flight, you're at about 41,000 feet, things start to go wrong. And, and uh, how, how do you first recognize that things are starting, something's happening? That's right. Uh, we were uh, cruising at 41,000 feet on our, our route direct from Ottawa to uh, Edmonton. Um, we had just bypassed, uh, we'd had dinner and had just bypassed uh, some thunderstorms on a cold front uh, near Red Lake. We experienced uh, one low-pressure fuel warning light come on. Morris got into our uh, emergency uh, handbook and uh, under, uh, under the appropriate chapter, there was uh, really no information. We assumed it was a fail pump. There are two electrically driven pumps uh, pumping fuel to each engine and uh, also a fuel pump uh, operated direct drive from the engine. So there's three pumps per engine, so the failure of one is not not an issue. We simply turned it off. And a little while later, a second pump came on with its associated warning light and uh, beep, 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 beeps and uh, this alerted us to something uh, maybe a little more serious. Uh, um, we had, during our course, only been told that it was a brand uh, that the, the technology was new in the 767. It was the first metric aeroplane, uh, first uh, computerized airplane in, right. in Canada, and also the first metric airplane. Um, during our course, we had not been given any information on what the computers were doing. They were replacing. Uh, most of the second officer's tasks who had been uh, eliminated from the crew and other, uh, some of his, uh, some of the second officer's uh, uh, staff uh, uh, items were, were handled by, now by ground staff. So we had a uh, total, we, we had a good fuel indication. We've been doing our normal fuel checks en route. 
And we're actually gaining on fuel because we had climbed 2,000 feet higher than we were flight plan. And instead of zigzagging down the, the route over radio uh, beacons, we uh, we requested and, and was cleared by Winnipeg ATC to climb to uh, to head directly from Ottawa to Edmonton. And so in both these situations, we should have been saving fuel. And according to our fuel calculations on route we were, so fuel didn't enter into our minds at that at, uh, at that moment. Uh, it was just uh, there, there's some kind of a computer issue that uh, we don't understand. We had no background, zero background information on how the computers performed and what they did and, and what this meant. Yeah. Yet before long, you don't have engines anymore. You've run out of fuel. That's right. And uh, what happened was after the second fuel pump came on, I said to uh, the first officer, contact uh, Winnipeg Air Traffic Control, tell them I'd like a clearance direct to Winnipeg. And I made them, we got a clearance direct, disconnect the autopilot and, and started hand flying on the turn towards Winnipeg and descending. Our instruments showed us we were going to be about 10,000 feet over Winnipeg Airport when we started down. We had only been uh, on our descent for a couple of minutes and the left engine failed. We went through the shutdown procedure on it and prepared ourselves for a single engine landing, notified Winnipeg of that. Uh, just done that, and the second engine failed. And uh, as you say, we were out of fuel without really, really realizing it. I had made an announcement to the passengers where we, we, when I decided to divert to Winnipeg that we had some kind of a computer problem we didn't understand and that Air Canada had a main mate based in uh, Winnipeg, and uh, that's where we're at. That's where you're going. Pearl, you're sitting in the back at this point. Um, I guess no one would know anything other than the diversion to Winnipeg. You're thinking, okay. And then all of a sudden, do you realize that the engines are gone? Is is that silence sort of deafening in the cabin at that point? We didn't realize that the the engines were gone. It was just that Chris, my three-year-old son, and I were watching a movie, and uh, and the screen went dark, right. and the uh, flight attendants told us to go back to our seats. We knew by the look of the flight attendants' faces that something was very wrong. Very wrong. But not right. at that moment. Not at that moment that the uh, engines stopped. Bob, at this point, you're out of fuel. Your engines have stopped. Uh, you're trying to figure out where you can go. Winnipeg seems like the logical choice, about 120 kilometers, because there's emergency services there in case of a crash landing. But you realize, I gather, uh, you and your first officer, that you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it to Winnipeg. Yeah, um, first officer Quintel was, uh, because we had lost most of our instruments, so we didn't even have know how fast we were coming down, only our forward speed. And so it was, and there's no way you can judge how fast you're coming down and how well you're gliding. I'd slowed to the airplane to what I thought was an optimum glide speed. And uh, Morris uh, uh, kept us cool and using uh, uh, distance uh, measurements from uh, Winnipeg Air Traffic Control and our and inf- information from our standby altimeter, he he kept a, a graph of uh, how fast we were coming down, and we got down. We were overflying a layer of cloud below us over Lake Win- over Lake Winnipeg. We got to the south end. The the cloud had burned off. We we got, could see the ground for the first time. And at that about that point, Morris said to Bob, "I'm not sure we're going to make uh, Winnipeg." 
what goes through your body? You realize all of a sudden you're, I mean, you have this Ram air turbine, right? I should point out there is some, something helping a little bit, but not really. You've essentially become a, a you know, a, a state of the art glider. Well, that's true. Uh, but, but it did glide very well. And, uh, you know, we came down faster than I thought we would, you know, these, these, New airplanes are pretty good gliders. As a matter of fact, when pilots throttle back to flight idle, when you're a passenger in the back, normally there's just enough power on the engine to overcome the drag of the engine. So it's right. like the engines aren't on the, on the wings. And they are good gliders. And pilots all the time are using speed brakes to come down as fast as, uh, as is required to, to meet air traffic control restrictions. So, and you were you know, a glider pilot, right? I mean, you were, you were a glider pilot, so you knew you, you knew quite a bit yeah, about this. Yeah, back in the 60s, I, uh, I, I did quite a bit. I instructed gliding, instructed aerobatics and that. So, but, you know, all, all, uh, what I say is all pilots are, are glider pilots. When they throttle back, they may not think of it that way, but, but uh, they're really flying a, 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 a great big glider. And it handled, it handled very, very well. At this point, I gather uh, your first officer, Maurice Quintal, had spent time at uh, when he was in the military, had spent time at this Air Force base in Gimli, Manitoba, which had since been decommissioned. And he suddenly realizes that maybe, just maybe, you can make it there, that maybe that's that's your your one big chance. What was that like? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, on the descent, uh, I had been talking with air traffic control about other airports. There's... There are other airports in the area also, and uh, Morris uh, said, you know, Bob, it's, it's got a good uh, long jet runway. And uh, so as soon as Morris said that, I made an immediate turn <laughs> up the uh, western shoreline of Lake Winnipeg. At this point, you're trying to descend into this airport. And you, I mean, for listeners who wouldn't understand just how much control you have over the, over the aircraft at this point, not, I mean, some, but, but not much, right? Not much when it comes to taking this, bringing this thing down for a smooth landing on a short piece of, on a short piece of, uh, of runway. No, that's right. You know, it's a pretty sophisticated, uh, high tech airplane and uh, most of the stuff failed. When our uh, when the engines failed, we lost our electrics, hydraulics, uh, pneumatics, hydraulics system for that provided by the ram air turbine. And with you know the airplane was decompressing, we were you know the air, people's ears must have been popping a little bit in the back. Uh, we didn't have you know a lot of the flight controls we normally have, so we can safely slow the airplane down or increase its rate of descent. So. Uh, when when Morris pointed out where the airfield was, and we got we were getting lined up on the runway, and I asked for the for him to lower the undercarriage because we were going to be too high, and we needed the, the the drag of the gear. He operated the normal hydraulic selector, and of course nothing happened. And uh, got on the manual under uh, emergency uh, landing gear, and couldn't find an emergency procedure, which apparently was located about three pages in in the middle of hydraulic yeah. but there was a switch and, and morris hit it and we could hear the gear coming out and yes. it came out by a gravity not all of it though I, I gather and pearl you're in the back now so you as a passenger i mean one of the things as and i've always only ever been an airline passenger there's a certain feeling of helplessness when you think wow this is something's happening here and we're just gonna have to hope and hope that's right but you sort of go into shock and having my little little guy there, I, all I could think of was my two children back in Montreal uh, and uh, and my little guy that it just I uh, just was just three years old. And really, it went through my mind 
quite strongly that we were going to die. I, I don't know why, because we, we sort of just went into shock. And then when the, the flight attendants were putting us through the uh, emergency procedures, we, we just sort of all went into shock. Uh, this is uh, Mayday, and uh, we require a vector uh, onto uh, the closest available runway. You're approximately 12 miles from Gimli right now. Uh, where is it? On the right? On your right, about your 4 o'clock position. Do they have emergency equipment? Negative emergency equipment at all. Just one runway available, I believe, and uh, no control and uh, no information on it. And uh, there will be nobody on the runway when we get there, right? Nothing. Bob Pearson is a former Air Canada, retired Air Canada pilot. His wife is Pearl, and we're here. They're speaking to us tonight uh, from just outside of Ottawa. We're talking about the 40th anniversary of the infamous Gimli Glider, perhaps one of the most dramatic uh, events in Canadian aviation history. One recognized that around the world is one of the most dramatic events in aviation history. Uh, a 767, an Air Canada flight from Ottawa to Edmonton, runs out of fuel over Western Ontario. Can't make it to Winnipeg as it's dis- as it's falling from the sky. Quite literally, the option is a decommissioned um, military or Air Force base in Gimli, Manitoba, and a runway that's there. But getting onto that runway, Bob, is no small feat. What exactly is a side slip? Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, after we got the gear down and we're still too high, so the, the, the normally we would have speed brakes like, like all aircraft do have now. Gliders have speed brakes, but we didn't. So uh, what I did was I... Put the, uh, the air, using the three primary flight controls, the ailerons, rudder, and elevators, powered by the ram air turbine, turned the aircraft sideways. So we were crabbing through the air. And that, in fact, was using the, the, the side of the fuselage as a big speed brake. Right. That, that slowed us down and increased our rate of descent because we were going to be, we're going to land at the far end of the runway if I hadn't done that, or maybe even past the runway. You know, I could have done a 360 turn. We figured that wasn't a, we would have lost sight of the runway for quite a while, or S turns, and I didn't think we'd lose enough altitude. So that's the, the, the that was the third, the third option, and that's the one I chose. And it worked, and I varied that, that side slip uh, to fly a glide path. You know, slowed the airplane from the 210 knots indicated to 180. You know, we looked in good shape. The the old approach lights were in place on the on the big cement uh, runway with right. was an Air Force Base. So, so I mean, you, I gather, you had never done a side slip in a glider, let alone on a 767. At this point, I mean, you knew how to do it, but but this is this had never been done before. Well, you know, all all private pilots, uh, to my knowledge, still today. Uh, to get their license because you're you're training normally in a single engine airplane and what happens to the engine fails so you're 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 taught to, uh, a little bit elementary but you, I I understand that I did back in the, in the 50s had to had to demonstrate a side slip right. so uh, and, but you don't side slip gliders because they've got they've got speed brakes you don't have to right airplanes do but I used to side slip the tow planes. Because okay. you're drag, dragging a 200-foot-long rope with a big metal ring on the on the end, and, and you'd want that to clear the farmer's fence. So we were using a, a grass field uh, in Hawkesbury, Ontario, where I where I glided. So you come, I'd always come in high and do a side slip every time to, so right. that I wouldn't land way down the runway. 
so it was familiar. This time, though, just just you individually, have you stopped thinking about, Pearl was mentioning just thinking about her kids and thinking about the consequences of what might happen. At this point, I gather from having read interviews that you've done, you're, you're completely focused on the runway. You're not even thinking about anything else at this point. No, uh, I had a pretty good case of tunnel vision. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm often asked, uh, was it an emotional experience? It was absolutely no emotion at all. It was, looking back on it, it's almost scary. It was a cold, a very cold, robotic feeling, you know, that just uh, our relationship with this runway that accomplished what was needed to be accomplished, you know, a safe landing on that hard piece of cement instead of in a field somewhere. Yeah. And, and to, to make things, to top it all off, uh, here you have this runway you can land on, which is in of itself, um, you know, will will wind up being a lifesaver. And when you get there, you, you arrive and this runway is now being used as a drag race sort of strip. There are people on this runway. There are kids on bicycles on this runway. And here comes this mo- this huge aircraft silently dropping onto this. Uh, what was that like? Because you look out and, and, and the troubles aren't over yet. No, you know, uh, I, uh, you know, this, this side slip was pretty steep. Uh, you know, the crabbing uh, sensation must have been hard on people in the back. And uh, just straightened it out over the old approach flight poles over the end of the runway. And we touched down 800 feet down the runway. I still hadn't hadn't seen uh, anybody on the runway. I, I was so focused on the cement. Uh, so as soon as we touched down 800 feet uh, down, uh, we normally aim for a 1,000. So it shows how controllable it was. And uh, as soon as I jumped, as we touched down, I jumped on the brakes fairly firmly, and the nose hit with a big bang. I didn't realize the nose gear wasn't locked. And that's when I saw the boys in front of us on bicycles, and that that set my heart uh, moving. And I think that was the end of the cold, uh, cold robotic <laughs> yeah. period I went through. You said you could see the fear in there. You were so close, you could see the fear in their eyes, those boys yeah, on those bikes. Right. Yeah, they can see the, they can see my eyes too. I guess. Wow, Pearl, you're and in the I back. Close. Yeah, you're in the back at this point. Uh, I, I already thinking, wow, I, I don't know what's going to happen here. What was that? What were those last few minutes like? Well, uh, Rick was in the uh, cockpit with Bob. He came mm-hmm. back maybe three or four or five minutes uh, before landing, and he leaned over to me and he said. Uh, we're just a little short of. I asked him what was what was going on, and he said we're just a little short of fuel. <laughs> and he, I, he said, uh, and uh, I said, well, how short? And he said, just a little. I don't know if that that uh, helped me at all, but I really was wondering what it was going to be like to die. I I did have still have that in my mind, but uh, when we landed, it. It was such a relief, like I couldn't, uh, we couldn't believe that we landed and uh, we're still alive. Yeah, I, I understand that there was applause, that everyone just sort of didn't really know what to do. And then I, I guess you also realize you got to get out of there, right? That's right. That's right. So uh, uh, I think it was Rick that said, okay, let's go. And somebody opened the door and uh, we slid down the chutes. And when, uh, when we were outside, I I said to Rick, we'd better run because thinking of the um, the airplane that had gone down in Cincinnati the month before, right. I said, we'd, we'd better run. It might catch fire. And Rick said, no, don't worry. There's no uh, fuel. 
I heard on the West radar frequency, he said, uh, one of the 767 says, uh, he's down okay, he's in one piece, and that's when our cheer went up. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> because all of these people were going to sleep in their own bed that night. It's the knowledge that you know under stress you can perform. Before that, you don't know. You just hope you will, and you train, you train for it, but you never know. With the things that they had to deal with was magnificent. I think that got proven in the simulator in Vancouver. They tried out this um, same circumstances with several crews, and they all crashed. Retired Air Canada pilot Bob Pearson is with us with his wife, Pearl. Uh, he was the pilot of the infamous Gimli Glider, the plane that ran out of fuel uh, over Western Ontario. Uh, and the flight came in for a safe landing, a bit of a bumpy but safe landing at an at a decommissioned airstrip, uh, a military airstrip in Gimli, Manitoba, thus the name. Um Bob, when you look back, I mean, I, I realized there was an investigation and so on. We've talked a bit about uh, what happened that day with with the with the mix up with the fuel measurement and so on, and, and the training that then ensued. But if you look at longer terms, a lot of things happened from that day. A lot, a lot was learnt, and I realized that you went on to another decade of piloting. Uh, but that day must have changed everybody who was on flight one forty three. Yeah, I would think so. You know, and, and just listening to Pearl, I, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking maybe I had the easiest job because I had control. You know, I I, I didn't have that worry about. I guess we're, maybe we're going to die. So, um, yeah, and 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 uh, asked, you know, the, the federal government inquiry lasted uh, about a year, and a lot a lot of good came from it. There was a lot of changes to Boeing procedures and aviation procedures worldwide. A lot was learned by it. Uh, the the invest the, that investigation was not just into the Gimli accident; it was uh, into aviation uh, procedures and traditions and training in, in Canada. And, and there were an awful lot of changes uh, made. The manuals were updated that were out of out of date, and uh, training was improved uh, for uh, pilots, mechanics, flight attendants. Uh, I think there were an awful lot of benefits to learn from that uh, that one flight. It, it did leave a little scrape on the airplane, but the airplane did fly another twenty five years for Canada. So yeah, in a way, it was a bit of a cheap uh, cheap lesson. When it was done, even that day, did was there ever a time where you managed to look back at it and think, "Wow, I can't believe." I, you know, I can't believe I managed to do that. I mean, despite all the training and talking about the tunnel vision and, and how that all kicked in, your experience and so on, but a series of correct decisions that could have, any other decision might have gone the wrong way, but a series of correct decisions in an intensely high-pressure situation, you must have at least at some point been able to pat yourself on the back for that. Yes, I felt uh, very good, you know, about what happened. Uh, and, uh, you know, within a week, uh, I was uh, invited by the RCMP to sit down with them and go over uh, what what transpired, and the investigating officer had the Boeing and uh, Air Canada manual operations manuals. Asked me what what had happened uh, with maintenance doing these calculations and and uh, us doing uh, on route checks and all that. And you know the the officer said, uh, "Well, that uh, that's it. Uh, you guys did everything according to the to the book." and uh, and uh, thanks very much. So when the inquiry started, uh, it, it, 
you know, we had a lot of self-confidence that uh, that we were going to uh, come out of it looking pretty good. It was just going to take a bit of time because people were speculating, as people do. Mm-hmm. You know, those dumb pilots, uh, they didn't, you know, as if, as if you could stick your finger in a fuel gauge in a big 767. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New, t- new technology. You know, and, and you such have to rely time, on other people for things. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't bolt on the engines and do all this stuff. You know, we we're the operators, and uh, and so that was our job. And and yes, we did, I guess, pat ourselves on the back a little bit. And Pearl, for you, I mean, you know, I, I gather the boy who is sitting beside you must now be in his in his mid to late forties, right? I mean, there was a whole <laughs> life that that continued yeah. on from that day. That's right. He's uh, going to be forty-three, and he's coming up to the and he's coming to the fortieth. Uh, that's right. That's right. How did that day change for for you, Pearl? How, how how did how did that change you for you and your family after that after that day? What happened? What was it like? I, I suppose at, at life goes on at some point, but wow. Yes, life goes on. The next uh, the next evening. Uh, one of our pilot friends that lived in uh, Winnipeg uh, happened to be flying to Edmonton from Winnipeg, so we got on his flight. Wow! And um, and uh, we we weren't afraid at all. We just thought, oh, it wouldn't wouldn't happen again. That uh, that it doesn't lightning doesn't strike twice. So we've never dreamt about it or been afraid to go back on a, an airplane at all nothing and, and now and now as as is the case most years but this is a big one it's a 40th anniversary um everyone's headed back to gimli right to to mark this day what's that like for you bob oh, pretty good uh, you know it's a nice feeling to meet people uh, and hear their involvement and that's what this anniversary is going to be about it's uh the organizers have uh, i guess i'll do a little talking a few others will do a little bit of talking but i think it'll be mostly up to the people uh, that help put the fire out in the nose and the when the Winnipeg Sports Car Club and yeah. uh, and other people, you know, there was a meeting, a big meeting going up nearby, and it affected those people. Some people saw us in the air, so it's going to be a nice uh, nice to hear other, you know, other than listening to myself for a change, <laughs> to listen to others uh, talk about how how this uh, has experienced them and, and and I guess changed the town a little bit. Yeah, it, it, I mean, in many ways, the town still celebrates um, the miracle that happened. You know, n- not to put too fine, not to wax too poetic, but the miracle that happened in their backyard that day, forty years later. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, they hoist the flag uh, at the town hall, uh, give me the glider flag, and and they're making quite a big deal of it. It's a big dinner and a hangar, and uh, yeah, they'll be, you know, and they're, they're erecting a plaque where we touch down uh, on the runway. A big uh, so, you know, there's always things going on. Some friends are coming out with us, uh, retired pilots also, and uh, so we're looking forward to it. Well, uh, Bob Pearson and Pearl, it's lovely to be able to speak to you both uh, 40 years later. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. This next one is an important story in so many different ways. The transfer of notorious serial killer and rapist Paul Bernardo from a maximum security prison in Ontario to a medium security facility north of Montreal 
quite quietly in late May, set off a firestorm of controversy. How could a convicted killer sentenced to life in prison and declared a dangerous offender uh, and whose crimes seem to absolutely negate any chance of rehabilitation be considered for that kind of move? Well, Correctional Service Canada launched a review of that decision and today released an 85-page report by a three-person panel detailing what happened and why. CSC Commissioner Ann Kelly says the decision to transfer Bernardo was sound and followed proper laws and policies. And Bernardo, it turns out, for now at least, will stay where he is in that medium security facility. I have been with CSC for close to 40 years. And I know that our feelings towards offenders cannot guide our decisions. Our system only works if we continue to carry out our duties according to the rule of law. Right. But why? How, you might ask? Part of the issue here is that despite convictions for the kidnapping, torture and murder of Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey in the early 1990s, the manslaughter and manslaughter and the death of Tammy Homolka, sister of Carla Homolka, of course, uh, Bernardo was treated according to the rules of the correctional system. And that meant that while his security classification had been reviewed every two years since 1999 and any change to medium overruled, this time, he again made a request for the transfer, and he had worked to meet the criteria that had been laid out for him. Here again is Ann Kelly. The punishment is the sentence, and he was given the harshest sentence possible in the Canadian criminal justice system. Despite the fact that he is at a medium security institution, does not negate the fact that he is a psychopath and that he committed horrific and unspeakable crimes. Right. Um, the lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families, Tim Danson, released a statement today saying that he'd spoken with both Ann Kelly and the minister, Marco Mendicino, whose uh, file this is, uh, but still does not accept that Bernardo should be transferred. And if it followed the rules, then the rules need changing. There was a big, lot of anger here about communication as well. The victim's families were first notified uh, that Bernardo was being moved the morning of the transfer. Uh, Danson says that that caused unnecessary emotional distress as well. Well, these are all things that my next guest knows, unfortunately, all too well. Uh, these, this, the way the system works has angered other families of murder victims, including that of Ontario eight-year-old Tori Stafford, who was murdered in 2009. Her killers as well were both also transferred to lower security prisons after serving just some of their sentences. And Rodney Stafford joins me now. Rodney, thank you so much. I know this is a tough one uh, to talk about, I'm sure. Yeah, no problem. Thank you, Ben. Just your reaction to this whole thing. I, you know, I've been reading some interviews that you've done over the past little bit, and and just, you know, I think everyone understands that the prison system works a certain way, and that prisoners, you know, don't stay, aren't locked up twenty four hours a day in, in cages. That there is a system that they are in, and that they're they are moved around, and that rehabilitation is kind of the name of the game here. But wow, for a family of someone who knows what's what this is all about, it still feels so wrong. It's very wrong. It's very disgusting. And it's a blatant slap in the face to each one of these families and any family that's going to go through it in the future. You, you've dealt with this before as well, I know. But, but tell me a bit about the communication thing, because this felt like part of the big problem here, that even though um, families of the victims may understand how this might work, that they're not kept in the loop nearly enough. And the review said it again today. There was no reason for the families to be let known at the last minute that this was happening. No, no, because families are supposed to be updated along the way. 
And this this instance is a perfect example of, as to how they were trying to hide something and bury it under the rug. Um, it, his, his transfer isn't warranted in any way, in any way, shape, or form. It's, it's not. He, he doesn't deserve to be transferred. He should be back to maximum where he belongs. Yeah, what, what, I mean, th- that question was put right to the commissioner today, obviously, by, by many people saying, listen, you know, we get it. We get that for the vast majority of the prison population, there is a system in place that, that, that treats each of them the same. But how come for certain prisoners, the ones that we've identified as being particularly, uh, you know, that, that, the, that society sees as particularly, that, that the judge of the trial pointed out was particularly heinous? Why do, why do the rules apply to them the same way? You've been through this. You you know. They, they, the rules should not apply the same for for killers, especially serial killers or chil- children, or somebody who has killed anybody who is vulnerable. Um, there's there's no reason for any any of this, like in lowering the security. I can understand, you know, people who are in for blue-collar crimes, you know, and stuff like that, where they've made a simple mistake. You haven't taken a life, like, these people, they have taken people's lives, and you heard Ann, Ann Kelly herself call them a, still call them a psychopath. Says it's not, he's, he's not, he shouldn't be where he's, where he is. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, that, I mean, she was, she had a bit of a, you know, I think it was, because she'd been a, she's been a parole officer or had been for, for many years and understands, I think, both sides of this, uh, but is within the system itself. I mean, she, what she essentially was saying today is, listen, these are the rules. And these, and you know, we applied them as far as we can tell correctly. That uh, you know, he applied to, for the transfer. Tell me a bit about your case because you went through this. I gather that yeah. uh, that that both people were transferred to to minimal, minim, lower security prisons. How was that process? You know, how were you informed? Were you ever told? Did you have any input? Well, what had happened was in August of I believe it was 2018. I had got a phone call from my mom saying that Crescent Canada was trying to get a hold of me regarding something to do with Terry Lynn. So I had called Corrections Canada, and they had informed me Terry Lynn was leaving for an, an, uh, an armed escort for a medical leave. But it was going to be somewhere in Saskatchewan. And I was like, pardon? <laughs> like, I, I hadn't heard anything about that. And uh, so she had gone back over the file and had informed me that in December of 2017, which is nine months prior to me finding out, Terry Lynn had been transferred out to Saskatchewan to an indeed Indigenous healing lodge. Um, which sparked a protest, and we we fought to have her put back into a traditional prison and removed from the healing lodge. Um, where in this healing lodge, she was with families in an open fenced um, facility. Um, she had every right as any of the other individuals there to freely walk amongst everybody, do what she wanted, and at any point she could have ran. <clears throat> but then. We met up with Ann Kelly a couple of weeks later, and we I was trying to get the information from her as to how this could happen or what, like, where do we go from here kind of thing. And I, I just got fed a bunch of baloney, lies, and not once did she tell me that Michael Rafferty had been transferred during the time frame we were fighting for this uh, transfer of Terry Lynn. Yeah, these are the two people convicted in in your daughter's death, right? I mean, yeah. it's hard for anyone who's who's not in your shoes to even begin, as you would understand, to even begin to imagine the the just the the, the roller coaster of emotions when these things happen. Well, you know, it is, uh, and it sucks because the ma- the majority of these emotions bec- come from events caused by our government, the people who are supposed to be standing behind us. 
they've made all these changes to laws, but they haven't done anything to change the uh, the Charter of Rights for victims. There's a, there's a totally different charter, but they're not up, they're not maintaining that one to the degree they are of changing the laws. So victims are falling behind. This is going to sound like like an obvious question, maybe because it came up again today, which is the idea of imprisonment and punishment, right? Um, and in your shoes. Yeah. I suspect that 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 it's both, and that if you lose sight of that for the victims' families, that you lose sight of something pretty important. You do, and you you continuously revictimize the families and the people who do not need to be victimized. There there should be no reason for twenty five years that nobody should be hearing about anything to do with their their loved one's killer. Like Bernardo, he's been in there for a length of time, but still, there is, they're labeling him a psychopath. They're labeling him an issue. So why lower his security? Keep him where he was. They're slowly introducing him to the streets again. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he'll ever get parole. But I mean, that's I, I'm not I'm, I'm not a parole officer, so so I, I don't know. In, in this case, you know, they were pretty. I mean, the one thing that they've gone out of their way to try to say, and this is, I was interested to hear from you on this too, is they're trying to. I mean, Lamacaza, La I, I, I gather one of the people. Uh, that you've been talking about uh, in relation to Tories at the same institution is that Paul Bernardo is now going to be in or is already in. It really oh, does matter, right? Because he's no longer there. He's, he's no longer there. Okay, he's gone. But no. you know, they yeah. describe this this place as being just like just like a maximum security prison. You know, there's guards, there's fences. You know, there's no free. There's no. It's not a country club. But it is but a country this, club. They, they can lie yeah. to you all, you all they want. It is a country yeah. club. They live in townhouse settings. They have their own kitchenettes, living rooms, bathrooms, bedrooms. They're allowed to have visitation. They can, they can walk freely amongst the campus. Like it's 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 bullshit. Excuse my language, but yeah, it, are, these families, my family, there's so many families out there suffering while these people are just getting away with murder. Rodney Stafford, father of Tory Stafford, is with us this half hour. We're talking about uh, we're talking about transferring uh, convicted murderers to lower security facilities. Today, the uh, the Correction Service Canada report found that its transfer of Paul Bernardo from a maximum security prison to a medium security prison was done by the book. And there's been uh, we're just talking about about why that was, what could be changed, and some communication issues. Um, Rodney, I know this this is a tough question, but considering that this you know. We have a court system. There's a charter of rights. We've seen some tough on criminal or tough on sentencing rules be struck down in the past. I, I know they're constantly trying to rework this in a way that makes sense for everybody concerned. What would you like to see done? What What do you think could be done? We heard some promises today about better informing families. I'm sure those ring hollow to you. But what would you like to see done? Oh, they need to clear out Corrections Canada and start over with a whole new crew. Like that's every, Everything to do with Corrections Canada is wrong right now. Although they operate under a system that's been set up for them, kind of, but you have, you know, obviously you have firsthand experience with it all the time. That's the problem, right? You think it's this huge bureaucracy that just doesn't has just taken its eye off off what it actually what they should be doing. Correct. I uh, I agree with that one hundred percent. Today we heard they're going to strike a committee try to figure out how to better inform inform victims' families when the, these things are happening. It, it, does that bring any? Does that bring any? Is that a change well, that needs to happen at all? No, that's something they should be doing all along. That's that. Yeah. That's what they've been promising from the beginning, and now that now now that they're saying that they well, that's what they're going to do is start pushing it to make sure that families are more informed. It's their job all along. So, like they're they're failing. They're failing. 
I, I suppose, I mean, if, if the rules, one of the questions that came up today is, you know, there, there were some changes made uh, about, I think it's six, seven, eight years ago to the way this is done, uh, which is, uh, which could be changed. Do you think the laws need changing now to try to allow for these circumstances whereby certain prisoners within the system are not given these sorts of considerations? Well, yeah, uh, depending on, depending on the, the crime and the extremity of it, like, Sure, there's a lot of people that don't warrant being in prison for life because their crime wasn't of that nature, like to deserve being in there for life. But when you're talking about people who are killing innocent children and vulnerable people, there's there's something terribly wrong there. And when the government is doing everything possible to try to help these people back out onto the streets rather than helping the victims better themselves and rehabilitate themselves, so we can still be productive members of society. Things need to change. You know, I, I was, I, I think everyone was shocked when this happened and how badly it was communicated to everybody, you know, and, and, and finding out the family, the victims of, of Bernardo's, the families of Bernardo's victims found this out the morning of and so on. There must be a lesson learned here when we walk away from it. Um, if you had to change, if, if something could be changed quickly, because I don't think they're going to dismantle uh, correction services tomorrow morning, is there anything that could be done in the short term, anything that you think would work? Anything that I believe that would work in a short yeah. time frame? In the short term, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, just go back over some, uh, some of the laws. Just There needs to be justice reform. There needs to be bail reform. There's, there, there's a lot of changes that need to be made, and yes, it won't, it won't happen overnight, but Corrections Canada really has to start getting on the sides of the victims and the victims' families. Yeah, I, I you know, I just, I again, I, I can't imagine what it's like to have to go through the, go through, see these episodes, and clearly, all this issue with with Paul Bernardo brought up a lot of memories for you too. Oh, it did it did because now these people are just these families are going through the exact same thing I was going through five years ago when all this was brought up. Insane same scenario basically but it's yeah it's 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 come to a point where the government just can say you know okay well no this is what's going to happen and really you don't have say do you get better notification now than you did five years ago has anything changed for you i i've been getting regular notifications when it comes to um medical leaves and stuff like that um i i get i get a call i also get a letter um so it's kind of like a double thing um, but I, I have requested that, and I, I think they're sticking to it because I, I have been so vocal. Yeah. Do you ever submit? I mean, I gather that the victims' families are allowed to submit their thoughts. Do you do, do, you do that? Does that have any impact, do you think? Um, well, <laughs> everybody's seen my thoughts out in the open, yes. like, this, <laughs> yeah. like basically, so there's really no, no need for me. Um, but, yeah, like it, it, it's important for victims to express their voice, no matter how they can. They just got to be able to find an outlet to make people hear it and listen. Well, Rodney Stafford, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on this tonight. Um, yeah, and, and as always, again, uh, my condolences. I appreciate it. Thank you. 
Rodney Stafford is the father of eight-year-old Tory Stafford, who was murdered back in 2009. Uh, those convicted, the two people convicted of murdering her, were transferred to lower security prisons not long after they went to jail. We've been talking about the Paul Bernardo case. Something you mean the rules? I understand the way the system works, I, and I, I believe in, in a correctional system that tries to rehabilitate. But there must be some exceptions. There must be some exceptions for those who I think a vast majority of people understand are not rehabilitatable. And to, I'm not saying lock them up and throw away the key, but in the case of someone like Paul Bernardo, what are you supposed to do? What benefit do we have by transferring him to a medium security prison? I just don't get it. When we come back, food banks at the front lines of the affordability crisis, we're going to get a firsthand view of what it's like these days at one of the biggest ones of the country. some good news earlier this week. At least the headlines made it sound like good news for all those struggling to make ends meet with the price of everything having gone up so much from rent to your mortgage to groceries, you name it. StatsCan revealed that Canada's inflation rate had fallen to 2.8% in June, the lowest level in more than two years. That's within the target range that the Bank of Canada looks for, between 2 and 3%. And Finance Minister Christian Freeland called it a milestone moment. The fact that inflation has come now below, down below 3%, it is now within the 1% to 3% target range, which is the target set by the government for the Bank of Canada. That is a significant moment. It should provide a lot of relief to Canadians. Christia Freeland there, but what is the story behind those numbers? Well, a big drop in gas prices compared to a year ago, 21% lower, was the big driver, as was near uh, 15% drops in the cost of telecom services compared to June of 2022. But I think you'll all recognize what's on the other side of that equation, food and mortgage costs, rent. They were all the biggest factors pushing the rate up. First, on the housing side, higher interest rates are driving up mortgage costs by more than 30% over last year. That's not that surprising, I guess. Uh, And while stats found that rent had increased by nearly 6% over June of 2022, I'm sure that doesn't come as a surprise either. If you've been to the grocery store, you'll know that food continues to increase at a pace of more than 9%. It did in June, at least. And overall, it's gone up by almost 20% in the last two years, the fastest pace of food price increases in four decades. Here's Sylvain Charlebois, a name you'll recognize, professor in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie. That gap really makes people mad because uh, they're looking at the economy. Things are really getting back to normal, but not at the grocery store. And so it will come as little surprise that frontline services such as food banks are really seeing the impacts of this all, of this affordability crisis, especially in cities that were already extremely expensive, like Vancouver. Take the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. It now serves some 17,000 people a month. Last year alone, it provided 8 million pounds of food. What are they seeing? How has the face of who they're serving changed with this affordability crisis uh, so acute right now. David Long is the Food Bank's CEO, and he joins me now. David, thank you. uh, Good evening, Ben. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, You're seeing this firsthand now, I know. And I was reading... uh, that in, that article you wrote in McLean's, which was you know a great long article just about your career and your work with the food bank and just how much things have altered over the past little while. But who are you seeing now that you weren't seeing before? Uh, we're seeing a lot of people that are uh, working, um, you know, full time employment, um, and they just they can't make ends meet, and you know they have to pay everything else. You know, they have to pay the rent and they have to pay the utilities and. You know, they need a car to get to work and price of gas and insurance. Um, and, you know, sort of the last the last area that they can actually cut 
uh, is unfortunately food. So we're seeing more and more people. Uh, people are shocked when I tell them, you know, I, I, I have retired teachers, retired nurses, uh, people that, you know, senior citizens that just haven't put enough money aside to, to retire them. Um, and it really comes down to you know, it's, the, it's the price of rent, and, and especially in Vancouver and the big cities. Yeah, I mean, you're really right at the front of it, right? You're seeing things that that others that others don't see, right? Because the, the, again, some of these these people you're helping are are people that get up every morning, go to work. You wouldn't know even perhaps if you stood beside them at work that this was happening. No, absolutely, absolutely not. I mean, it's uh, I, I think food banking has changed dramatically, and I think. Uh, Something that I face, I, I actually talked to my board chair today about this uh, topic, was uh, people have this vision of a food bank of maybe 10, 20 years ago, and it's sort of a church basement handing out craft dinner and you know cheaper sort of instant noodles. And that's really not who we are at all anymore. We've now become these very sophisticated, large organizations. And when I talk to people or when I tour people through uh, our main warehouse, which is about 40,000 square feet, Everybody says the same thing. You look like Costco. Uh, and I say, yeah, we do. We look exactly like Costco, except we're free. And that's, you know, and the, the back end, what, what needs to happen in the back end to, to, to move that volume of food, it, it's staggering. Yeah, I, I mean, you're, you've gone from being in sort of the charity business to being in the food distribution business, essentially. Uh, very much so. And that's uh, part, of the, part of the reason I, wanted to, I was delighted when McLean's asked me to write an article about this is because, I say the same thing continuously, and, and my staff who are probably listening tonight are going to shake their heads yet again, but it's, there's no shortage of food. There's a distribution problem. Yes, you've mentioned that more than a few times, because oftentimes you hear politicians talk about sort of addressing a food shortage, and uh, there doesn't seem to be a food shortage. There's a money shortage. There's no two ways about that. <laughs> absolutely. No, ab- yeah. absolutely. There, there, there is no shortage of food. Um, we're working on a project right now. Um, the average farmer... Uh, leaves about 10 to 15 percent of what he grows in the field, um, whether it's because it's it's the wrong size or it doesn't look perfect or he's already met the quotas for uh, the large um, grocery chains. Um, so there's, there's food left in the field. So we're working on a pilot project right now where we're going to actually pay the labor that he has to, to, to harvest that additional 10 or 15 percent uh, food. Uh, and then, you know, we'll give him a charitable tax receipt. Uh, on top of that. Uh, and so if you think one of our farmers here in the lower mainland that we regularly deal with, that 600 acres, just think about that. This, it's 60 acres of food that is going to waste. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, again, though, David, I mean, I, I've talked about this over the many, many years. I've been, you know, I've obviously, uh, as all reporters have, have done stories on food banks back when they were what you described, you know, church basements and so on, and yeah. to what they've become now. I mean, again, you know, this was never meant, it was never meant to be this way, right? It was never this, I mean, they're not that old. They were never meant to become sort of the, a, a really important part of the food distribution system in any society. And yet, here we are. No, absolutely. The Greater Vancouver Food Bank, uh, like many food banks, started in 1983. And it was sort of a temporary measure uh, back then, again, when inflation was rampant. And uh, it just never went away. Uh, in fact, Statistics show um, in 2008, when the you know, the big financial crisis around the world, food bank usage went up 15 to 17 percent. Never went back down. Uh, and I, I, my, my fear and my concern, and one of the reasons I wanted to write this article, was that 
what I've seen in five years is the Greater Vancouver Food Bank, one of the, the big six food banks across Canada, going from 6,500 uh, clients to 17,000. So what's going to happen in the next five years? Uh, and this just, this just is not a, it's not just a Canadian issue. I, I, I talk to food banks in Mexico, uh, New York City, you know, everywhere around the world, people are seeing the same thing. And it just, it's a crisis that's here that people need to pay attention to. And it, a lot of it can be helped by less, and, and I hate to use the words food waste, just that a lot of it can be, it's not food waste. There is perfectly good food out there that's ending up in landfill. I can tell you so many stories. Um, you know, I, I got 20 tons of grapes last summer. I got, you know, whatever it was, 10,000 uh, 10, pounds of avocados that I mentioned in the, in the article. Yeah. That were reject, they were rejected because they were half a centimeter too small. And, and you know, it's, uh, something needs to change in the system. Uh, because there's so much food uh, out there. Right. And, and you mentioned it already. You're see, we're seeing this right across the country. I mean, to go from 6,500 to 17,000, that is a remarkable... I don't think I began to understand that that jump. Well, we're right now, and, and over the last 12... Because I keep the statistics on everything that we do. And over the last 12 months, uh, we're signing up an average of 800 new clients uh, every month. So we're on track to have about 10,000 new clients over the last 12 months. And it's frightening, um, to be honest. Um, but I'm just grateful that we have amazing suppliers and we have some incredible connections where we actually can divert some of this food that's heading to landfill. And not only do we help the, our 17,000 clients in direct distribution, we help about 140 agency partners around the lower mainland. And we also help about 20 other food banks just because of the size of who we are and who we've become. And yours is not, uh, you're not by no means alone. You, you point out a, a study that was done I, I, pre-pandemic, believe it or not, where already uh, usage was up, or usage, or at this point, usage was up 35% across the country, right? That's correct. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's all directed, uh, it's all um, related to income. I mean, when, at the start of the pandemic, um, when the CERB checks were, when the government were giving out the CERB checks, Food banks across Canada saw a thirty percent reduction in usage. And, so, just, and so, yeah, sorry, yeah, just a question of dollars and cents, right? I think you mentioned it as well, and I think we we all know this. You know that that you 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 cut back on everything that you can, and something something's left undone, and and that's often the food on your table. You talk about parents skipping meals so their kids can eat. I mean. You know, if you walk down the streets of, you know, living in this country with the riches that we have, it, it, it's hard to, it, it is really hard to swallow. No, it, it is. And, and you really don't know who that person is that's using the food bank. And, and what we've tried to do in the, at the Greater Vancouver Food Bank is make it a, a much more welcoming experience. And there used to be a lot of shame about coming to a food bank. And, you know, we moved into this new, beautiful new big warehouse and, and, uh, We've made it bright and, and cheerful, and the, the staff are, that I have are amazing. The volunteers are incredible, and you know, if you're everybody goes through a tough time and needs some help, and we're trying to cheer people up and hopefully give them some really nutritious food and send them on their way with a smile on their face. Um, you know, I, I have amazing staff and volunteers, and if we hear somebody's, we had a, a couple of weeks ago, we had a lady was there with her her daughter, and somebody overheard that it was the, her daughter's birthday. And, you know, we ended up getting a. We had some toys and things that had been donated, and we ended up getting her, getting her something that her mom could give her as a gift for her birthday because she didn't have any money left to do that. 
Um, so we really try and do whatever we can to put a smile on people's faces. Uh, and, and the other thing that we really focus on as well is that, you know, 65 to 70 percent of what we give to people is fresh, perishable food. Mm. That's a big focus of mine. And uh, I'm thrilled with what we're able to do, because I also think if you're people having a tough time and, and living in the poverty when they eat a lot of this cheap instant noodles and high sodium, it's just causing bigger problems within society with people getting sick and kids getting diabetes and all these other terrible things that happen. And when you actually start feeding people proper nutritious food as they should be able to get, you'll see a massive shift and a massive change. David Long is the Greater Vancouver Food Bank CEO. He's just written a really great and complete article in McLean's just about his own career, the food bank itself, how much has changed, the new face of who they're seeing, how many working people they're now seeing at the food bank, how they've had to ramp up essentially into into a food distribution organization like a Costco versus, you know, what you might picture as, you know, some uh, older folk with uh, little boxes full of uh, craft dinner in a church basement somewhere. That's how much the food bank system has changed out of necessity in this country right now, which, David, you, you quoted someone interesting in the article, I think someone, one of your colleagues in New Brunswick, uh, that we used to call food banks a band-aid, and now we call them a tourniquet, right? Essentially saving lives, not just healing small wounds, and, and it, it was it was quite the quite the visual. It wasn't, but yeah. how do we get out of this? Because it can't, it can't be tenable. It can't be tenable for you to increase the amount of people you have to serve by, you know, 800 people a month these days. No, that was, that was Alex uh, from the Greener Village Food Bank. And I, I actually did a presentation. Um, there was a, a Food Banks Canada conference in, in Edmonton a couple of weeks ago. And Alex and I and Lisa from uh, Mosul, Montreal Food Bank, mm-hmm. we, did a, we did a presentation on, uh, on innovation and what's happening. Uh, and it was quite funny because I was talking about the amount of food that goes to landfill. And, and we partner with an organization in Langley called Refeed. And, and it's a waste haul company. That, that, but the whole premise of this is, the food that goes going to landfill, it's perfectly good. And we have a simple rule. If you wouldn't give it to your family, we don't give it to our clients. And mm-hmm. so I, I was in, literally in the middle of this presentation in Edmonton, and my director of operations texted me to say, we just got three shipping containers of mandarin oranges. <laughs> wow. But just visualize that. You know, these are 40, 50-foot shipping containers full of mandarin yeah. oranges that, that for some reason, uh, you know, we're being rejected, and, and through Refeed Canada and Stuart, who, who owns Refeed, uh, it's very simple. His concept is very simple: food for humans first, then for livestock, and whatever's left is composted and he feeds it to worms and makes this incredible organic matter to help the soil improve. But we've taken literally three shipping containers of mandarin oranges, and we've partnered with a juicing company, and we've handed out freshly squeezed mandarin orange juice. David, one of the things that strikes me listening to you is that if you get too good at this, then it becomes a pro- it becomes a problem that 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 politicians don't start to ignore, right? Because if the safety net is solid, um, then what's the problem, right? I mean, I, that sounds very trite, but that's part of, that's part of the issue here. But but Ben, they're ignoring it anyway. I, I, I wrote right that enough. in my article that uh, you know. We in Vancouver alone, the, the Greater Vancouver Food Bank, we distribute two million dollars worth of food every month. And I recently toured some city councillors, and they were, "Oh, I had no idea. How can you have no idea? This is your city." And you know, you, you talk about a tourniquet and saving lives. You know, one of my you know, one of my peers, uh, Megan Nichols, is the CEO of the Mississauga Food Bank. And I had a heartbreaking conversation with her when some of her frontline staff are 
what they have to listen to sometimes and people in abject poverty just being so tired of being in poverty, they're talking about just ending their lives. And, you know, this is what people need to understand. This is their, it, it, what makes me angry is the, there's so much food out there. Canada produces enough food for 50 million people. There's 40 million others in the country and six or seven million people go to bed hungry. How is that not a broken food system? And it's so bad that people are talking to these volunteers and frontline workers helping them at these large food banks. And they're saying, I can't do this anymore. And literally talking about ending their lives. So yeah. we are a tourniquet. I can tell you stories of individuals that have come to the Greater Vancouver Food Bank suffering from cancer and lost their jobs or out of work. And, and literally we had a lady who said, the only reason I'm still here is because of you guys. What, what would a solution look like? I mean, I, I know that uh, you grew up in Northern Ireland. You've lived here for quite a while. You've worked in a lot of different industries. You come from a different, you're not from a social work background. What would a solution look like to this beyond sort of a basic income or just getting more hands, more money into the hands that people, of people that actually need it? And, you know, is a food stamp system, would that work? I, 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 I don't know. I scratch my head. I, I think in infrastructure. Um, uh, if we can recreate what I like, what we've built at the Greater Vancouver Food Bank is a massive warehouse with lots of refrigeration, um, and really, it's uh, it, it's to recreate that in, in key areas around the province of British Columbia and then right across Canada, and have these large warehouses where people can go and get fresh food because there there is so much out there. Um, right. It, it's it, and, it, and it, it's it's a, it's just a it's a logistical issue of distribution and how do we get this food to the people and how do we get it to the right people and and you know the other thing ben that we could we could talk about for hours is the fact that canada desperately there's an aging population that's retiring and you know you, you see the politicians so we need to get more immigrants in and let's take more people coming into canada which i think is fantastic but then there's the whole issue of not recognizing the uh, the qualifications these people have as they come to canada to, to start a new life or being encouraged to I have engineers, I have doctors, I have surgeons from other countries and their qualifications aren't recognized and they're working in McDonald's and they're coming to the food bank. Yeah. I'm, so yeah. I, I, it, 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 we need to sit down. At a, you know, we all need to get together and sit down and really look at this in a serious way about how do we create an infrastructure where we can get food around and not just send it to landfill. Right. It feels like with everything else, with the cost of housing and the cost of everything else, so sort of static and hard to move that maybe the one place we can offer um, proper uh, ch- charity to call it uh, is, is, in the, is in the food system. David, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me. Speaking of big events, uh, you may have heard or you may have seen there are a whole bunch of very big names in music on tour these days. Names like Taylor Swift and Beyonce, Bruce Springsteen, Ed Sheeran, Madonna until she delayed for health reasons. And the demand to go see them is so intense after so many of these big names were kept off the road by COVID that it actually appears to be having sort of an impact on broader economic measurements. Uh, Take Beyonce's Renaissance tour that hit Toronto earlier this month. It kicked off uh, the North American leg, as she did in Toronto. When she was in Sweden in May, economists there said it was one of the factors that drove up inflation slightly, calling it the Beyonce blip, because so many fans descended on Stockholm that they drove up the costs of things like hotels and restaurants and other services. And of course, Taylor Swift's Eros tour is in a whole 
other stratosphere. The online research group Question Pro crunched the numbers and found that the Eras Tour will generate billions of dollars in economic activity in the U.S. alone, sort of nudging GDP a bit. The tour hits Seattle for two nights this weekend. So, of course, um, for Swift fans on the West Coast, that's a big deal. Others, too. I mean, people are coming from all over the place to see her wherever she lands. Of course, she hasn't set any dates in Canada yet, which which has been a big deal. The prime minister tweeted at her. I don't think he got a reply. Uh, King 5, which is the NBC affiliate in Seattle, uh, went out to find these Swifties converging on the city from around the world and spoke to some of them. Here they are. I live in Costa Rica right now. And so I got selected for the pre-sale for the Seattle show and for the 22nd. And so I was like, Auntie Kathleen, I think I'm going to come visit you. My husband really did a good job surprising us with those tickets. He was, I cried like for a week. <laughs> All the way from Costa Rica. There's other people coming from Australia, Alberta, of course. It, it's just huge. So what's going on? Why is 2023 turning into the year that everyone, where everyone was talking about tough times and inflation, but so many are willing to part with big money to see their favorite artists live? Joining me now is Mara Klonig. She's a senior analyst at Kamoyan Associates. Mara, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. It's not off. I mean, I think we've always known about the big business of touring, and certainly since the decline of physical album sales, CD sales, what have you, it's become a big part of, of, of any major artist's revenue stream. But this year feels different. I mean, we've been reading articles about it sort of shifting GDP and such. What's going on in the summer of 2023? Why has it been so noticeable? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on here. First off, I think we've got just like revenge recreation coming out of the pandemic, just some pent up demand for, you know, having in-person live experiences. So that's, that's one component here. Um, another component is just inflation. Things cost a lot right now, and that's driving up the cost, which is then therefore driving up like the impacts of these tours. But I think uh, kind of the biggest thing we're seeing here is, you know, just like the star caliber of these tours that we're seeing. So, you know, Taylor Swift, Beyonce, Elton John's farewell tour. It's just, it's, it's just different than anything we've we've seen in in recent years. So I think that you know their star power and their very loyal fan bases are really what's driving a lot of the spending. Um, I know, like with Taylor Swift, the average uh, attendee budgeted. Um, I'm sorry, they're spending about thirteen hundred dollars to attend that concert, which is twice what they had budgeted. Um, and it's, it, and even that far exceeds the typical expenditure on a concert. Most people spend 100 to $500 to go to a concert. People are willing to spend $1,300 to go see Taylor Swift live. $1,300. I mean, and you multiply that by the sheer number of concerts she's doing and the size of the venue she's playing. That's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. <laughs> You pointed out, though, that that this is really the tale of kind of the tale of, of the blockbusters versus I was thinking of the movie industry, you know, the blockbusters versus the small indies where inflation and all these things, people, you know, the fact that you can pass on a lot of these costs to fans willing to pay more is one thing. But for a lot of artists, for most artists, that's just not true. Yeah, yeah, we're, you know, I read an article saying that it's, it's right now we're seeing the tale of two different men, music industries, you know, you've got the big stars, those Taylors, those Beyonce's of the world, and then you have everybody else. So not, not just any artist can come through town and, and create this big of a ripple effect. Um, there really is something special about those stars. Um, you know, we know that inflation and just, you know, increasing costs, they're really driving up the cost of touring. So that's really hitting a lot of artists pretty hard. When we look at who it is that is, and you mentioned Beyonce, obviously, and Taylor Swift, whose audiences are are, are probably pretty 
across a few age spectrums, but certainly uh, you mentioned that, you know, Gen Z millennials are the ones sort of really putting out the money. I noticed The Cure, though, had a, had a record money-making tour recently, which would appeal to an older audience. So I guess it really depends on, quite obviously, it depends on how many people want to see you and do you hit the sweet spot, right? Because it feels right. like everyone's on tour right now. Absolutely. You know, and we know that, you know, a lot of um, concert spending right now is being driven by millennials and Gen Zers. They're just willing to spend more on in-person live experiences. There's also just, you know, maybe perhaps their lack of life experience. They don't necessarily remember, you know, being able to spend $50 to see your favorite artists in yeah. concert. Yeah, that goes back a while. <laughs> goes back a while. The $50 concert. Yeah, uh, one thing that I th- that that you pointed out that was interesting is just the um is just where this stands. I mean, I, I these articles whereby Taylor Swift's tour alone is sort of having an impact on US GDP. I I found that really surprising. Yeah, so you know, it is a, a massive impact. I mean, the Eras tour is expected to generate 590 million dollars in sales. And it's going to translate to $4.6 billion in total consumer spending across the United States. So we're not even talking about her international leg of the tour. It's significant. And it's it's definitely causing a huge impact in the community she's stopping in. Um, but it, it's important to realize that this is just kind of like a one-time blip for most of these communities. If they're able to get, you know, every year a major artist of that caliber to stop by, that would be a, a great economic strategy for them. But I, I have a feeling that some of these are kind of, you know, a blip on the radar, great one-time influx of, you know, economic spending and, you know, tax revenues for that community. But it's it's certainly not fundamentally altering the economy of any of these these locations that she's stopping. Right. I, I suppose, unlike, say, hosting the Olympics or something, at least all the ven- – they always use existing infrastructure, right? There is no additional spending, really, that goes right. in. It's all It all kind of rolls back into the economy. Exactly. Yep. I guess people really compete for these dates. Now, Beyonce, and there's there's been some consternation in Canada because Taylor Swift is not playing this country so far on this tour. And in fact, to such an extent that the prime minister here <laughs> tweeted at her saying, please come to Canada. And she, he's not alone. Although Beyonce opened her Renaissance tour in Toronto for, with two nights. So uh, do you have any insight on how the decisions are made around where these artists go, considering I would imagine just about every major city and not so major city wants Taylor Swift to stop by. Oh yeah, absolutely. Any any community would 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 give anything, I'm sure, to have Taylor Swift Swift stop stop in their in their town. Um I don't know exactly what's gone into her team's calculus and not stopping in Canada. My apologies. That's that's unfortunate. Um you know I know that as you mentioned, you know, having that existing infrastructure to handle those huge influxes of people is really important. I, I, I'm not up on your tourism infrastructure in Canada. My apologies. Um, yeah, it's but, pretty good. It's pretty good. There's some tax issues at hand yeah. too. And also she's going to Europe as well. And these two, it's a big tour, right? So you don't yeah. just sort of, you need to plan it out like a, like a well, it has to be planned out months in advance, I'm sure. Right, right. Maybe, you know, there's, there's, maybe there's still hope. She's been announcing kind of like new uh, concerts pretty regularly. Maybe, maybe it'll work for you. Mara Koenig is a senior analyst at Kamoyne and Associates. We're talking about uh, this summer's what feels like an unprecedented, and not to use that word again, but feels like a really spectacular concert season uh, that's going on, specifically around Beyonce and Taylor Swift. Obviously, those are big money and big revenue generating tours. Uh, you pointed out something interesting in your research, too, that, that, that people may not realize because it, it is a bit of a one-off, but the industry multiplier for concerts, in other words, how much money drifts through the economy when a big concert comes to town is remarkable. It's bigger than a lot of other really substantial industries that government invest a lot of money in. 
Yeah, yeah, I know. I was a little surprised by that myself when I was doing this research. Um, you know, concerts and live events generate in the American economy $132.6 billion uh, each year. Um, and so that basically for every $1 spent on a, co- on a concert, there's $4.3 generated throughout that economy. That, that multiple, we call this a multiplier effect in, in economic impact. That multiplier is higher than it is for aircraft manufacturing, higher than automobile manufacturing, higher than semiconducting, uh, semiconductor manufacturing in the U.S. And, and you were mentioning again that just, just this year, everyone, and you called it revenge, uh, sort of post-pandemic <laughs> revenge, but uh, an awful lot of, I mean, this is the, the these stats are American. I, I assume Canada is very similar. Uh, that about a quarter of Americans plan to attend a summer concert this year, which again is big, and uh, that some are willing to go into debt for it as well. Which that that I found a little surprising, but who knows? Yeah, yeah. So before um, before we're kind of back at pre-pandemic levels where people plan to attend an average of four concerts or festivals. That's up from three a year in 2021 during the you know pandemic. So um, people are kind of back up to their regular level of attending these types of events, and and it really is driven by those millennials and Gen Zers. They want that in-person experience. Um, uh, and they're willing to spend more and they're also more willing to go into debt. About 25% of them said that they would go into debt to go to a live event. And this isn't even for a Taylor Swift concert. This is just overall. And one, and because we've been doing stories, I mean, we did earlier this year just about how, and we mentioned it earlier, but how a lot of artists are in fact suffering. Festivals are suffering because they can't, it's just too expensive to bring people in, the whole structures around them. Uh, so it feels like, yeah, it feels like feast or famine right now for, for some, for a lot of artists out there. Yeah, absolutely. Taylor Swift and Beyonce, they can afford to pay those kind of elevated costs of touring, but a lot of people can't, um, which is unfortunate because with, um, you know, just the, the change in, changes in the music industry, um, right now about 30% of an artist's revenue comes from concert tours. That's the biggest chunk of their revenue. Um, and, and that's changed from, you know, in years in the past, you know, there was album sales that they were able to generate or even like radio listening. But now with streaming, it's really changed that for them. So I imagine a lot of artists are, are struggling to, to kind of compete in this market. Yeah. And when it comes to just sort of how this how this breaks down generationally, I, I suppose having been to some concerts that are more reflective of a Gen Xer like myself, you know, I mean, I had the concert, the tickets to Madonna that got canceled. She was opening in Vancouver, speaking of Canada, uh, which was then delayed. Uh, Bruce Springsteen later this year, uh, New Order and the Pet Shop Boys earlier this year, obviously Depeche Mode, The Cure. Tears for Fears will come along. If you're an 80s person, those are all names that will mean something to you. I wonder if it's that Gen Xers and such don't spend as much money on the experience as younger fans do. Like they don't go all in for a week. They don't make a big weekend event of it. They essentially go book a hotel, go to the concert, leave, go home. And that's that. I, yeah. I wonder if, if a new generation hasn't found a new way to make concerts an even bigger deal and to spend more money while they're at it. I think that's absolutely true. I think that's what we're seeing here. And I suppose again, when you look at when you look at what comes next, there just aren't that many artists who can do this. So once Beyonce and Taylor Swift decide they're going to, you know, hang it up for another couple of years, uh, this may just all go back to, or who knows, maybe another band will come along that is just as big. But, but it doesn't feel like there are a lot of heir apparents out there. Not a whole lot, and and I'll just disclose that I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan and a awesome. huge Beyonce fan. So for me, I'm like, no, no one, no one can hold a candle to these women. But um, you know, there obviously there are other major bands and artists out there. You know, I know that some of the more recent tours by Bruce Springsteen and Harry Styles. You know, they were they were blockbuster tours in their own right. Um, unfortunately, like Taylor Swift blew them completely out of the water. Um, she she has now surpassed Elton John in terms of being the highest grossing tour of all time. So. And she's 
she's not even half done. I don't think and she's not even half done. Exactly. Uh, do you have tickets? Do you have tickets to either? I went and saw her last month in Cincinnati. Actually, I wow, that's yeah, that's lucky. not too too far. That's not too too yeah. far. How was how was it? It was phenomenal. I mean, I I am one of those people that spent more than I had planned to to go to that concert, but it was worth every single penny. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I just I gather it's just a huge big deal even within the state. It's kind of this that sense of community that you get that very few artists can provide. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I went there and, and just seeing like other fans and like what you know, asking them what eras are you and what, what's your outfit and you know, just yeah, it definitely felt like a community in a way that I've never really experienced. And then just looking out at a stadium of eighty thousand people and pink and sequins and shimmers, it was quite the experience. Did you buy a lot of merch or did, did you try? To I keep didn't. It? I didn't. Okay. I had some time constraints. I wasn't able to get out there in time to, you know, queue up in some of those lines. But I've done my fair share of like online shopping for Taylor Swift merch. Well, there you go, Mara. You've you've added to those billions that are pouring into the U.S. and North America. Well, U.S. economy at this point for the Taylor Swift tour. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I've, I've appreciated this time. Talking about your about your favorite concert, the most memorable concert you've ever been to. Uh, let me know. one 399 is the text line. one 399 The most memorable, maybe not the best, but the most memorable concert you've ever been to. There is nothing quite like seeing an artist that you really love for the very first time. Uh, I've done that before. Uh, I have to say one of the most electrifying experiences I ever had was going to see Barry White in Montreal back about 20 years ago. Uh, and I hadn't been a big Barry White fan when I was young, but man, it was so awesome. Isaac Hayes at, uh, at a small club in Montreal as well. Some really cool ones. But for a lot of people, for a lot of people, the most coveted ticket in a very long time is a ticket to Taylor Swift's Eras Tour. And it is landing in Seattle this weekend for two shows at the massive Lumen Field that's home to the Seattle Seahawks, capacity of nearly 70,000. It is an absolute bonanza for the city with fans or Swifties, as they're called, flying in, driving in, training in, busing in, you name it, from across the continent and around the world for what is certainly one of the most prized concert seats on the planet right now. Uh, here's what some of them told Seattle's NBC affiliate, King Five. We are coming from Peace River, Alberta. I mean, we're really excited to try like all the American foods. We'll just go by Caitlin and I'm traveling from Melbourne, Australia. I just needed a ticket. <laughs> I needed to get to the Eras tour. It had to happen. To get to see her in America is crazy. It is. It is. Last half hour, we dropped some numbers on this one. The tour is expected to generate about $590 million in sales and $4.6 billion in total consumer spending just for the U.S. dates. And then she heads off around the world. Not Canada, unfortunately, yet. Um, again, expected to be the highest grossing concert tour of all time. One of those some 140,000 Swifties descending on the Emerald City this weekend is our very own Dear technical producer Talia Miller, who you may know if you listen to the show enough, is a diehard Swift fan. And like many from BC, she'll be making the drive down, the pilgrimage down um, this weekend or tomorrow, I gather. Saturday morning, Saturday morning. So Talia, T minus, T Swift minus 44 hours, I think, if my maths are right. How yes. exciting. It must be so cool because you love Taylor Swift so much. You've never, I don't think you've seen her live, right? So. 
I haven't. A, this is going to be the fr- what a thrill. Right. This is going to be the first time. And I've been a fan of hers for 13 years. And then it really hasn't hit me yet. Like, I'm the kind of person, it doesn't hit me till the moment of. Like, it didn't hit me that I was moving to Vancouver until I was on the plane up in the sky. Right. And I was like, oh, I guess it's happening. <laughs> I, I, I imagine when it's going to really hit you, there's going to be. There's this walk in Seattle. I mean, I've been there for football games and so mm. on. The way where the stadium is, you kind of – there's a long walk that people take. And it, normally it's sort of that blue, uh, you know, that blue neon yellow and white of the Seahawks. Yes. But this time, what's it going to look like? What do you – there's so many cool-looking costumes at a Taylor Swift concert. <laughs> Absolutely. It's really like almost a Taylor Swift Comic-Con is the, how we're treating it. People are dressing up in past – tour outfits of hers of past music videos or like lyrics at this point and i use the example of there's a lyric that goes i asked the traffic lights if it'll be all right they say i don't know and people are dressing up as the traffic light that she's talking about and has a little uh speech bubble that says i don't know like we are fully going full out for this we're making friendship bracelets for each other and trading them as like we see one another it's quite the community it is. It's massive. And uh, I mean, we got to ask you the, all the, the honest questions. So you're going down. <laughs> yes. You're going down. What did you have to drop on the tickets? Uh, you know what? I just wanted to be in the room with her. That's all I cared about. So I paid 180 Canadian and I am in the nosebleeds area. Well, 180 Canadian feels like a, feels like you got a great deal, and there are I really no so. bad seats. No. There are no bad seats at that stadium. I mean, it'll be a little. Far. There are no bad seats at that stadium. It's gonna be, gonna be super cool. Absolutely. So, have you picked out your outfit yet? Are you? Are you? Can you? Can you talk about? Can you? Can you knock? Or do you just want to hold on to that one? <laughs> no, I'll tell you. So, I actually uh, went on Etsy, and I wanted to go kind of themed around her 1989 pop album because that's a very um, that's one of my favorite albums of hers. And I went on Etsy to look around because I was going to do her like tour outfit. But then I got worried about like, you know what? I don't want to be really sweaty in that. I feel like comfy is the best way right now. So I found a shirt that says on the back, the best people in life are free, which is one of her lyrics from New Romantics. And it says 1989 Dance Club on the front. So there's going to be wow. lots of glitter in my hair and on my body. And we're going to make sure that we wear comfortable shorts because it is a, like, we're going to be there till about 11 p.m. Eastern time. She does a three and a half hour set. That's an amazing set. That's, right? a, I mean, one one thing, and you've been following this tour. I remember you were talking about her, her opening <laughs> night, right? You were talking about what was on the set list. Swifties were paying very close attention to every aspect of this, mm-hmm. but it's just, I mean, at three and a half hour tour, she really does give the audience their money's worth, so to speak. Absolutely. Like you, it's really, it is called the Eras tour, but it's almost a greatest hits tour so far for her. We get to hear like love story and you belong with me from her very like sec for second album and just really all of her top 40 hits. And she did really think about the songs that we wanted to hear too. We have a 10 minute version of a song that this is the first time that we're hearing it on this tour which is very very exciting unbelievable and and this is such a huge community too i mean i think some people uh if you weren't paying too close attention some people i mean even in my case i'm a music fan my dad was in the music business i pay attention Mm -hmm. to concert tours and who's going where 
I think even I was, I mean, I understood how incredibly popular Taylor Swift is. I mean, I think she single-handedly drove vinyl sales. I mean, everyone talks about, oh, vinyl's back. You know who's, you know who's back? <laughs> Taylor Swift vinyl is back. I it's think she us. got it for like a, a quarter of all vinyl sales in America last year. I realized how incredibly popular she was, but I had no idea that she could sell out what she's doing. I mean, she's selling out massive stadiums all around the world for night after night. She's doing six nights in Los Angeles. It's incredible. And you got to think about the stamina to do that, too, because she had like from what I've seen so far, she doesn't really take any breaks. It's just costume change after costume change. And her just doing there, there's 44 songs in this set list. 44. 44. Wow. How crazy wow. is that? That is great. Can I mean, you, you must, imagine? <laughs> being such a big fan, being such a big fan, you must be hoping you always go to a concert, hoping they're going to play something that you're not expecting. But mm-hmm. yeah, a favorite. Yeah. Absolutely. So she does. I'm getting, I'm pretty lucky. I'm going to get to hear most of the hits and the songs that I would, I'm very excited to scream uh, the lyrics out. But she does do two um, acoustic songs where she plays on piano and guitar. And those have been swapped up every single night. So all of us on the internet have been like, okay, what has she played this night? Okay, so what's left? Like, what's remaining? And people are even like, Honestly, sport betting, what songs are going to be played each night um, coming up. And people are saying, you know, if she plays this song, I will cut off all my hair or I will shave off my eyebrows. Like just ridiculous oh, things. Wow. <laughs> yeah. She's like a republic onto herself. <laughs> you know, excuse the boring old news guy in me because I'm going to have to ask you, why hasn't she come to Canada again? Does anyone, what's the, what's the rumor mill saying? Oh, I don't know. Someone said something about a radius clause, which I don't know anything about we're like did she do something bad mr trudeau and she's just not allowed in like it's very strange that she hasn't done at least even toronto because she's done it in the past she's come to vancouver she's done edmonton on past tours so all of us on the internet are just hoping there will be some glimmer of hope then it'll you know she'll just be like oh by the way i'm coming to canada um, she might. She that's might. what I'm really I mean, hoping yeah. for, Ben. You know, if I could have yeah. one wish, that's what it would be. But you're going to see her already. I mean, I've already. I, I was looking at her tour dates later. She's going to Mexico City for mm. four nights in in August. Then she's in Buenos Aires, Rio. She's in Brazil. She's doing four nights in Rio and four nights in Sao Paulo, one after each other. Tokyo, six nights in Singapore. Can you, can, can you believe it? So she's basically booked. If you want to know, she's booked right now up until May the. 24th mm-hmm. may the 30th of next year so it's gonna be on tour be for a whole that. year yeah she's gonna yeah. she's gonna be busy and like you know she will need a break i understand that but i do hope that she will find some time in her tour schedule to make a couple of canadian stops for us yeah i hope so walk me through your day then so you're leaving early saturday i hope there's not too many people at the border so you get through mm-hmm. nice and quick and then what's what's sort of how are you gonna is there like do you have like tail are there swift tailgate parties so to speak or what what what's everyone gonna do as you head head towards as you get ready for it? Uh, I've seen a few things like restaurants are having parties like pregame parties essentially for this. Um, I have seen a few tailgate parties, but I think what my group is it always depends on when we can get into our hotel room because I feel like what we're gonna do is just 
change and then we're going straight to the stadium because we want to get some merch. We want to take all the photos before, you know, the makeup's ruined from the crying, the sweating, you know, like it's going to be a whole thing. Like I, I, the moment the lights go down and you hear that first drum beat, uh, it's all over for us, Ben. We're just going to be, we're going to be. Uh, mush balls. We're gonna just be on the floor. Like it's it's gonna. I'm probably gonna emotionally black out, and you'll be like, "How was right. it?" And I'm gonna be like, "I don't remember uh, I anything." Don't remember a thing. <laughs> I don't remember a thing. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I suppose the people standing beside you are gonna be exactly the same. So oh, that's, that's just the fine, beauty right? of it. You know, it's all. Everyone's gonna be screaming, crying. And we all just have a mutual understanding that this is what it's like to be at the air store. And it's going to be happy tears, you know? And that's the most beautiful part of it. Yeah. It's so cool. It is so cool to see an artist you really, really love. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's one of the coolest things to do. There are a lot of concerts that probably, you know, might leave you a little lukewarm or they weren't as great as you'd hope. But, when, you know, oh, when yeah. you go to, get to go see someone you really love, that's uh, that's been the, the only thing, of course, is that it's three and a half hours then it's done. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, we already talked about this. We're not going to talk about it next week. But you're off next week. So we, uh, you're off recuperating emotionally. I am. I had to, you know, use up some vacation time. And I remember sending my boss an email being like, I'm just going to need some time to emotionally and physically attend and then recover from this event. Yeah. I, I listeners should know that Talia took, I think, if I remember correctly, you think you took the day off when her last album was released so you could listen to it all night. <laughs> I did. And you know what? All I did was sit in my pajamas, drink a little wine and have that album on repeat. So it was a day well spent. No doubt. No doubt. Uh, any last, so is there any, our parting advice to you, right? I, I guess you don't need any, but it's just, it's going to be so cool. Some. Are we, we going to see pictures? Are you going to be posting pictures on social media or any of that stuff? Oh, you, I'll annoy you. You're going to have to turn my notifications off. You're going to be like, oh, that's enough of that. <laughs> well, Talia, listen, it's going to be, I, I'm really happy for you. It's going to be so cool to go and take part, be part of that. And it is a really cool place to see a concert. It's a great place to see anything. And there is that incredible walk that you take to the stadium and it's going to be swift heaven. I think it's going to be awesome. Oh, I'm so excited, Ben. Thank you so much. 